Good morning. Please do pray with me. Thank you so much, Father, for the great privilege of gathering us together today to worship you with our covenant family and our guests and our missionary friends. Father, we do love you, our Lord, our strength. You are our rock, our fortress, and our redeemer. You reached down from your throne and you took hold of us. You rescued us from our enemy who was too strong. You saved us because you delighted in us, and we come here together this morning desiring to give you praise. Father, thank you for going before us and for never leaving or forsaking us. Father, we do rest knowing that you hear our prayers, and we have many. Father, in suffering and in distress, you give us relief, and we trust your promises are true. Father, please give healing and rest and comfort to Bill and Cindy Hay and and to Andrew Gray, who broke his arm yesterday. Father, also, as their mom went to be with you this week, please comfort Henry and Walter Morris and their whole family in their loss. Father, please also comfort Scott and Margaret Ann Pyburn in the loss of Scott's dad, and Alan Melanie Spooner in the loss of Alan's mom. Father, and Billy and Julie Tapscott in the loss of Julie's dad, Father, and Jeremy Martin and Lacey Viner, the loss of their grandfather this morning. Father, and David and Megan Wise, and the loss of David's grandmother yesterday. And, and please even give healing and rest and comfort to David's grandfather as he recovers in, in physical therapy. Father, we have much to be thankful for. We also praise you and rejoice that your kingdom grows and might be added to through birth. Father, we praise you for the birth of Talitha Marie Crute. Please bless her and proud parents, Josh and Juliana. Father, and for the birth of Cooper Carter, parents, Lyles and Virginia Carter, a true covenant child here in our home. Father, as we continue our missions festival, we pray that your spirit would move powerfully at Covenant Presbyterian Church over these next few days. Father, please do give rest and rejuvenation and joy to our guest missionaries. Please encourage and energize Dr. Wright that we may grow as you teach us through his words. Father, thank you for Henry and Phyllis and for all of the missions committee and volunteer efforts that are making this special. Father, even as I look around your church building this morning and see the flags, I'm excited to see what you're going to do here at Covenant this week. Finally, Father, may the matchless name of Jesus Christ be praised as we go into all nations. And please allow your spirit to move so that we might joyfully honor you in worship this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some of you will remember that Chrissy and I disappeared last summer for nearly three weeks. Uh, we told you quite openly uh, that we were going to go visit some missionaries in London, and uh, Jeremy uh, is one of those missionaries we met uh, in London. Uh, we told you we were visiting missionaries in Belgium, and that they were doing work all across Europe and the globe. Uh, we told you when we came back, we met with some other church planners all throughout the United Kingdom. What we didn't tell you is we had another major goal. One of the major goals of that trip was that we would recruit our today's speaker to come and speak at one of our missions festivals. My modest goal was to get him to agree to come one of the next four missions festivals, uh, and it turned out to be this year. So I am so excited uh, to introduce my friend and mentor, Chris Wright, to you. Uh, really, Chris has been a mentor of mine 
for decades uh, before I ever heard him preach or speak. Uh, I was reading his books about the Old Testament and books of the Bible, Old Testament theology, Old Testament ethics, and they had a big impact on me. Uh, in 2001, he became the leader of the Langham Partnership. The Langham, and John Stott recruited him to that role. The Langham Partnership exists to make sure the church globally has healthy and well-trained leaders for the global church. But two years after he became the leader of that, it was the first time I heard Chris Wright uh, speak in person. It was a highly academic uh, context at the University of St. Andrews with a lot of very significant academics around. And here's what my friend Chris did. He got up and preached to us in a beautiful way. And he told us this, that Jesus says that the whole Bible is about him and God's gracious mission to the nations. And he's here to tell us more about that while he's here. Chris, come and preach to us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robbie, and uh, good morning. Welcome to you all. It's great to be here. I didn't know I'd been recruited, Robbie. That's a nice sort of word to, to use. It sort of makes me feel almost military in, uh, uh, in coming here. You did a whole international trip just to get me. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, so here we are, uh, and it's great to be at, at Covenant and uh, to bring you greetings. Uh, greetings from my own home church which is uh, All Souls Church Langham Place in London, which was John Stott's church for many years, and where the name Langham comes from. It's just the name of a street in London. Uh, And uh, so greetings also from Langham Partnership. And uh, one of my colleagues here in the U.S. is Bart Musselman, who's over here waving his arm, so he can tell you more about what Langham is and does. But even before I I, I preach from the Scriptures, I just wanted to... um, say how moved I was, as I'm sure all of us were, by, uh, by Bob, Bob Bernie's uh, words to us from Ukraine, uh, because I was in Ukraine myself back in 2018 in that window of opportunity that he was referring to, because we've got Langham scholars there, that is men and women in, in, in Ukraine who are teaching in the seminaries there, who got their PhDs through the, the Langham program, and also a number of seminaries who, just like the churches that he was describing uh, are reaching out to displaced people, to refugees, uh, rescuing people from the front lines, uh, many of them themselves with family who are there, who are bereaved, who have lost loved ones, uh, and so we're hearing from them regularly. So our prayers very much are with Bob and all that you're doing there through our own uh, Langham connections in that country. So that was uh, very moving to hear. Now, we're going to be thinking this morning uh, about mission. This is a World Missions Festival, and you may have been slightly surprised to see that the readings, both the readings that we have had are from the Old Testament, Uh, and uh, particularly the one that's on page 14 there of your brochure, which I'll read in just a moment. Um, But let me begin by asking us three questions to kind of get us going into this message. Here's the first one. What kind of world is it that we're living in, the world we're living in, according to the Bible? What's the world we're living in? Secondly, what has God promised to do about the world that we're living in? Uh, What is God's plan, God's purpose for his world and all its nations? And thirdly, what does God require of us as the people of God in response to what God is doing in the world? And all three of those questions, I think, receive an answer in the passage that we're about to look at, Genesis chapter 18 and 19 together. Because those chapters there in Genesis answer all three questions. It shows us that we live in a world that's in a mess, a desperate mess, standing under the judgment of God. But secondly, in this text, we see that God has made a promise, promise of ultimate blessing for all the nations of the world. 
And thirdly, it shows us what God expects from his people in that world in relation to his promise. Now the passage you're going to read in just a moment uh, is from the middle of chapter 18, verses 16 to 21, but we need to put it into its context just to sort of see where we're at in the book of Genesis. It's uh, chapter 18 and 19 of the book really go together. And what we discover in Genesis 18 and 19 is that God was on a kind of fact-finding mission from heaven, as it were, right down to the lowest place on earth, literally, geographically, which was the Dead Sea and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he comes with two angels, and they turn up, apparently as three men, it seemed, at the tent of Abraham and Sarah at the beginning of Genesis 18. Uh, Initially, Abraham and Sarah don't know that this is God and two angels. They just feed them uh, as three men. And then as the story proceeds, it's very well told, God reveals who he is uh, and his identity becomes clear in that, in that story. And then after the meal that they have together is finished, it's very interesting that there, uh, here this morning, we will be eating a meal in the presence of God. In our story, God eats a meal in the presence of Abraham and Sarah. It's quite a remarkable turnaround in that story. But when that meal is over, we come to the text that we have now. If you look at it there on page 14, Genesis 18, verses 16 to 21. So let me read it to you now. Then the men, which means the three men as it appeared, the Lord and his two angels, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way like a good host. But Yahweh said, so this is... Yahweh the Lord, the God himself, talking to himself at this moment. Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of Yahweh the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then Yahweh said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, well, then I will know. So we respond to God's word that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. So in this text, I want us to see three things, really in relation to those three questions that we asked a moment ago. First of all, we're going to look at Sodom and Gomorrah. We have to, really, as a picture of our world, the world we live in. But secondly, and much more encouragingly, we will look at Abraham and the promise of God's mission. But then thirdly, we can't avoid it, we need to look at the way of the Lord as a pattern, the pattern, for God's people. So first of all then, Sodom and Gomorrah as a picture of our world. I'm sure you're probably well aware that in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a kind of proverbial model The words are used repeatedly in Old Testament and indeed in the Gospels by Jesus himself as a picture of human wickedness and especially wickedness 
that is in rebellion against God in such a way that God has to act in judgment upon it. It's our fallen world standing under the judgment of God. But how does the Bible describe the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah? We ought to get a kind of three-dimensional picture of it rather than focus only on one aspect of it that is the names perhaps have always been associated with. Because how does the Bible describe it? Well, the first time we read is here in the chapter we've just looked at. Did you notice that twice in verse 20 and 21, God says that he can hear an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that's a very significant word. It's one of those words which is called onomatopoeic. That is, it means what it sounds like. There are some words in English like that. This word in Hebrew is the word za'aka. And it means a cry for help, a scream, a yell. It's the word that's used repeatedly in the early chapters of Exodus for the crying out of the Israelites in Egypt under the slavery and brutality of the Egyptian gangmasters. It's also a word that the psalmists use quite often in the book of Psalms when they cry out to God for his help in some situation where they're being unjustly accused or attacked. And most vividly of all, it's the word that's used in Deuteronomy 23 with a scream of a woman who's being raped. So this is a vigorous, violent word. And God says, I can hear that in Sodom and Gomorrah, there are people who are crying out to me from suffering, from oppression, from cruelty. That's what's going on in the lands of that area where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were in control. People were suffering there. And God is hearing it. He says, it's coming right up to heaven, this outcry. And then in chapter 19, of course, we read that story of the horrific, attempted, violent rape of the two angels, the men, by all the men of Sodom, we're told. It was a kind of attempted gang rape. And so Sodom and Gomorrah also are characterized in that chapter by this disordered, violent, sexual aggression and hostile lust, the total opposite of the welcome and the hospitality and the loving that, uh, that should have been shown to the Lord, these two angels of the Lord that were there. And that, again, Genesis 19, has often been associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. But from that point of view, it goes on further into the, the rest of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah was speaking to Jerusalem, the people of Judah, who had just recently suffered a very violent attack by their enemies, and Isaiah says that unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah. In other words, destroyed by God. And you can imagine the people of Judah, hey, just a moment, who are you calling Sodom and Gomorrah? This is Jerusalem. We are the people of God. This is the city of David. And so Isaiah responds in the next verse, verse 10. Well then, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of God, you people of Gomorrah. And he's talking to the people of Judah, the Israelites. And why is he calling them Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, read the rest of Isaiah chapter 1. What he observes in the city of Jerusalem is that there's bloodshed, there's corruption, there's theft, there's poverty, there's destitution. In other words, there's all kind of social rottenness right there in the very heart of the city of God. And so he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. But the most powerful passage, I think, about Sodom and Gomorrah comes in Ezekiel chapter 16. Again, it's a prophet who is comparing the people of Israel and saying, you're even worse 
than Sodom and Gomorrah. What an insult that was. No wonder Jesus could use the same phrase as an insult in his day. And so Ezekiel says in chapter 16, verse 49, he says, This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, says God. In other words, the the sin of Sodom in Israel actually, says Ezekiel, was affluence, arrogance, and callousness. Too much money, too much pride, too much food, and neglect of the poor and the needy. And you begin to wonder, could anything be more descriptive of the world in which we live, including the Western world of today? The ingredients of the sin and Sodom and Gomorrah are things that we are familiar with. This is the world we live in, a world of cruelty and oppression, of sexual immorality, of violence, bloodshed, corruption, arrogance, extremes of wealth and poverty, and the callous neglect of the needy. So wonder God says there's an outcry coming up from that place. I can hear it. It stinks in heaven. And what a picture of our world, this world that we live in. Because you see, when we use the word Sodom and Gomorrah, we shouldn't think that they were some sort of mythological place of the imagination, you know, like Lord of the Rings or Avatar or something. No, these were real cities in real time in the real world. And ironically, it was the world, the land, into which God had sent Abraham to live and to walk before him. Very close, very nearby, just up the hill, really. You see, God had brought Abraham and his family out of the land of Babel, Babylon, Mesopotamia. That's where he'd come from. But God didn't bring Abraham out of the land of Babel up to heaven. He put him down from Babel into the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in some ways, similarly, God calls us, in one sense, out of the world, out of the world's sin and rebellion and wickedness when we learn to follow Christ and walk in his ways. But God doesn't call us immediately, as it were, up to heaven. Rather, God says, no, says Jesus, as the Father sent me into this world, into the world, so I send you into the world. You don't belong to the world, but you're in the world. And that is where we are conduct our lives and our mission and to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that this passage shows us when we see it in the light of the rest of the scripture. Sodom and Gomorrah, a picture, a real picture of our world under God's judgment. But that brings us secondly and more positively to Abraham and the promise of God's mission. Because you see, we, we might ask the question, why did God stop off en route from heaven, as it were, to Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't need to, did he? He could have just zapped them from heaven. He didn't need to travel all the way down to see what was going on. The whole story is told in this very human way. And why did he stop with Abraham and Sarah for a meal? I mean, God doesn't get hungry. Angels don't get hungry. It wasn't that he sort of heard Sarah was a wonderful cook and he wanted to sample some of the nice fare that she could produce. No. So why does God stop on his way to judgment? And the answer lies, of course, in what he says. 
He reminds himself, I mean, again, it's very humanly told, God reminds himself in verse 18 that Abraham will become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. God, on his way to judgment, is reminding himself of his purpose of redemption and blessing and salvation. It's almost almost as if God can't do one without the other. That is, that when God acts in judgment, it is also always going to be accompanied by God's saving, redemptive action. So it was in the flood, do you remember? Judgment on the whole earth, but he saves Noah. It's the way it is in the Exodus. He brings judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt in order to rescue his people. And, of course, it's ultimately true at the cross itself, where God chooses to bear God's own judgment in God's own self, in the person of the Son of God, in order to bring redemption and salvation to the world. And so here is God coming down, as it were, on one particular piece of human wickedness and sin, Sodom and Gomorrah, to bring judgment. But on the way to do that, he remembers that beyond that, the ultimate horizon, his global vision, is blessing to all the nations on the earth. And that, of course, is God reminding himself of something that he had said to Abraham right at the beginning. Because this verse in Genesis chapter 18 is actually an echo, of course, of Genesis 12, when God called Abraham in the first place and told him to leave his family's house and go to the land that God would show him. And God says, I will bless you and you'll be blessed and through you all nations on earth will be blessed. That was God's promise. And it's such an important promise in the Bible. I want you to think of it as as actually the very launch pad of biblical mission. It's where it all begins when God makes that promise to bless the nations. Indeed, it's the very heartbeat of the gospel. And you might say, I don't see much of the gospel here in this passage. Well, it's actually what Paul calls the gospel. Remember that the word gospel just means good news. And when you get to Genesis chapter 12... It comes after Genesis 11. You've got to know these things. You don't get a PhD for nothing. Uh, You've got to get the order of the Bible right. And you know that in Genesis 3 to 11, you have all the evil and wickedness of human beings which have led not only to the flood, but to the Tower of Babel, and the human race is scattered and divided, and on earth it's cursed. And so when Genesis 12 comes and God says, you know what, I'm going to bless all the nations on this earth, that's good news. It's good news that we sang about a few moments ago in that verse of the hymn, which I had not noticed particularly before, that God plans that wherever death and the curse is found, God's blessings will flow even more, uh, which is a wonderful thought. And that's what's happening here. And that is why in Galatians, Paul writes this. He said, yes, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is Galatians 3. So understand then, he says, that those who have faith meaning anyone who has faith in Jesus as Messiah and Savior, are the children of Abraham. It's you and me, children of Abraham. And Paul says, the scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith. And here's the word, the scriptures announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Literally it says, pre-evangelized Abraham. Abraham heard the gospel, but the good news was, quotes, Paul quotes, all nations will be blessed through you, quoting from Genesis 12, verse 3. So, Paul concludes, those who rely on faith, faith in Christ, 
are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul could say, you see, to those Galatians, they were Gentiles, they were Galati was the word, which was a form of the word Celt, by the way, as you might like to know, uh, the Celtic nation that had flooded out of Central Asia, down south into what is now Turkey, and then some of them headed further west to the very edges of the world, to Ireland, and the Celtic nations where I come from. You, just, you might have wondered what the accent is, it's actually from Northern Ireland, uh, because although I'm British, I'm not English, I'm Irish. And so the Celts reached to there. And interestingly, we know that the Galati, the Gauls, or the Galati, even in biblical times, had a reputation for being pretty wild and unruly and drunk most of the time, even back then. And so here were these Galati who had put their faith in Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And Paul says, that makes you children of Abraham. And that's good news. And so the gospel then is that which is God bringing the good news of salvation to all the nations on the earth, including the Celts. And so you see, what we could think of this weekend as you're celebrating world mission or world missions is that basically all it is is God keeping his promise to Abraham. That's what God said he would do, bless the nations. And he's doing it, (laughs) all these flags of places where God's blessing has reached. And that was even happening, you know, back in Old Testament times itself, one by one. Not in great multitudes, but you've got people like Jethro and Ruth from Moab and Naaman from Syria and the widow of Zarephath from Sidon and Phoenicia. These were people who came into the blessing of Abraham and the God of Abraham through the faith in him. And then when you come to the New Testament, you find that the gospel moves north into Turkey and Asia Minor, then it heads west into Europe and south into Africa with the Ethiopian eunuch, and east into Arabia, and then through Arabia to Syria, and right on up to China uh, by the 6th century. And then eventually, as God keeps his promise to Abraham, uh, the gospel reaches right across the continents that nobody ever heard of before, which aren't in the Bible. The Americas, Latin America, the south, the north, and the peoples living there. And all the time, God is keeping his promise to Abraham. Every time... The gospel reaches somewhere new. When the gospel reached you and someone led you to faith in Jesus Christ, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. Until the scriptures tell us that that day will come and there will be people of every nation and tribe and multitudes more than all these flags represent who will be there before the throne of God worshipping the Lamb of God. And that's what John says, isn't it, in Revelation When John says in chapter 7, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, people, tribe, and language, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And I have a sort of mental picture at that moment, that God turns to Abraham, pokes him in the ribs, and says, There you are. I kept my promise. Okay? All nations, I said, it would be. All nations, it is. And you thought, Abraham, at the time, that it was really rather funny because you're nearly 100 years old. How is it going to happen that I'm even going to have a son, let alone all nations? And you had a laugh in chapter 17, and Sarah has a laugh in chapter 18. But God has done it. And God will bring people from every nation to the throne of God in worship of the Lamb. 
That's why this promise to Abraham is so important in the Scriptures. And in a sense, for those, whether it's yourselves as members of this congregation or those whom you have sent to the ends of the earth as mission partners, all of us together are simply participating in this, which is the mission of God, to keep his promise to Abraham to bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. He's doing it. He'll continue to do it. So that's those first two things. We've looked at Sodom and Gomorrah as a picture of our broken, fallen world under God's judgment. But we've also looked at Abraham and the promise of God to bring blessing to all nations, the mission of God. And therefore, thirdly, we need to see in this verse also the way of the Lord as the pattern for God's people. Look again, would you, at the middle verse in that section, verse 19, because it's really the key verse in the passage Here is God talking about his own plans for the world. God says in verse 19, I have chosen him, that is Abraham, of course, so that he may command his children and his household after him, that is all the people of Israel, to keep the way of Yahweh, the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Very key verse. The very first thing we ought to notice really about that verse is the contrast with what follows. Because in verses 20 and 21, we have a very different way. It's the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, in a world that's going the way of Sodom and Gomorrah, I want the people of Abraham, this people, to be a community who will be walking in the ways of the Lord. Instead of the oppression and suffering and cruelty and violence and inequality of Sodom and Gomorrah, I want there to be a people who will be committed to the righteousness and justice of God. In other words, the contrast. God wants a community on this planet who will be different, who will be distinctive, or in biblical terms, who will be holy, which is what we'll be thinking of a little bit more this evening when we come to the book of Exodus and chapter 19 there. Or as Jesus said to us, a people who will be salt of the earth and light to the world who, like salt, will stand against the corruption of the world and as light will dispel the darkness of the world. And Jesus says, that's who you are, salt and light in the world. That's our mission. So let's think just for a few moments before we uh, draw to a close about what these words mean, the way of the Lord and righteousness and justice. The way of the Lord is actually one of the most common phrases used in the Old Testament for what we might call ethics or how you live your life. Uh, In fact, uh, it's it's a, a way of expressing that sense of walking in a way which is following in the footsteps of God. You you look at what God is like, the God of Israel. He's the God who says he's the God of compassion and integrity, truth, honesty and justice. So you look at how God behaves and then you walk in his ways. You imitate him and follow his example. That's exactly what you get in a place like Deuteronomy chapter 10, one of many places in Deuteronomy. But here's Moses talking, Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. Now Israel says, Moses, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What does God really, really want? One, to fear the Lord your God. Two, walk in all his ways. Three, love him, serve him, and obey him. That's all God wants, okay? Just five things. Uh, Fear him, walk, love, serve, obey. Moses gets the whole law down to five words. 
course, Jesus got it down to two uh, later on. And then when Moses says, well, what does it mean to walk in the ways of the Lord, which is one of the things God wants, he immediately explains it. Yes, the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, great God, mighty and awesome. Yeah, he's all of those things, but he shows no partiality, he accepts no bribes. So you can't corrupt him. This isn't a God you can use to get what you want. You pay him enough worship, he'll give you enough goodies. No, no, he's not that sort of God. Where you will find this God is that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner among you, giving them food and clothing. That's where you'll find this God. Not just with the great and the powerful and the, you know, the, the, the government and everything. This God is the God you will find among the family-less, widows and orphans, among the landless, those who are foreign, those who have no uh, security in this country. You will find God among those who are the neediest in community. That's verse 18. And then the very next verse says, Therefore you, says Moses, you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves are foreigners in Egypt. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Love your neighbors yourself. And you are to love the foreigners. Very, very challenging countercultural command right there in the heart of the Old Testament, and one that sadly the Israelites fail to obey, and so do most Christians. And yet it's there in the Scripture. So you see, walking in the ways of the Lord means doing what He wants to be done for those He cares for, showing love and provision and kindness to those whom God loves and serves, is what this verse is saying. That's what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord. God wants that sort of a community in the world. And just in case we missed that point from the phrase, the way of the Lord, the text God adds to it by doing righteousness and justice. You notice doing it, not thinking about it, not turning it into a concept like, say, social justice, and then sort of thinking, well, do we or don't we understand what that means? No, it's just something you do. These are active, dynamic words. It means allowing your whole life to be governed at a personal level and at a social and economic and political level by integrity, by fairness, by truth, by what is straight in the eyes of the Lord. That's to do righteousness and justice, to stand up for where there is oppression and exploitation and to advocate against it and to do right for those who are the victims of injustice or fraud or theft. Doing these things is what God wants there to be a community. Or as Michael will later put it, what does the Lord your God require? To do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So that's what God is saying in verse 19. But you might be saying, hang on a minute, this is a missions weekend. What's all this got to do with mission? Well, what I'd like you to see to answer that question is the logic of that verse, verse 19. Because it's got three parts, hasn't it? God says, I have chosen him. And then there are two so that's in the verse. I've chosen him. Well, that's our word for election, God's choice, God's calling of his people. God has created us as his people by choosing and calling us to himself. And God says, I've chosen Abraham so that he will keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's ethical language. That's how you live. And then says God, so that, bottom line, end of the verse, so that God will fulfill his promise to Abraham which he's just said is blessing all the nations in the previous verse. 
So you see, the bottom line of this whole verse is, yeah, God wants to bless the nations. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose. But how is God going to bless the nations? Well, God says, that's why I chose Abraham. He's the fountainhead of a whole community. Israel in the Old Testament, the Messianic community of God in the New Testament, all those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I've called them, that's their election, so that ultimately through them I can bless the nations. But how are they going to be a blessing to the nations unless they live and walk in the ways of the Lord? That's the challenge at the center of this verse. In other words, the way we live our lives, how we live individually and as a community, as a church, is the middle point, as it were. It's, it's the binding point between our calling, our election, and our mission. There is no biblical mission without biblical living. And that is the challenge of what God is saying here to Abraham. And remember, if we are in Christ, which I trust we are, then we are in Abraham. That's why I can take a verse like this from the text about Abraham and apply it to us as Christians. Because Paul tells us explicitly that those who have faith in Christ are in Abraham. We are his seed. Therefore, we not only inherit his blessing, we also inherit his mission. We too are called to walk in the way of the Lord. And that then raises the stakes pretty high, doesn't it? That shows us what is at stake in every act of obedience or disobedience. To the word of God in our lives, day by day, in our family, in our college, in our university, in our business, in our workplace, wherever it is, as we live as Christian disciples, are we walking in the ways of the Lord? Because when we fail to, when we fail to do what is right and just and fair and honest and truthful, or whatever else it may be, when we're no different from the world around us, the world of Sodom and Gomorrah, then we deny the very purpose, God's purpose, in our election. And we ultimately fail and hinder the mission of God in the world. I could end there, but I wouldn't want to on that negative note, though it can be very challenging for us. Because I think there is also an encouraging and positive point as well, which is to ask oneself, well, look, are you actually seeking day by day to faithfully walk in the ways of the Lord as you understand them to be? Even if it sometimes brings mockery or lack of understanding or even exclusion from uh, our culture that is around us, such hostility often towards Christian people. Even if that is happening, are you still struggling to walk as a disciple of Christ and to live in God's ways? Are you seeking to do what is right, whatever that may be? Sometimes it's hard to know what is right, let alone to do it, but that's what you want to do and to be for God, to walk in the ways of the Lord and to do what is right and just. Well, if that is you, then do be encouraged, do press on. Because as Paul would say, that when we seek to live that godly, obedient life, then we're not only walking worthy, of the calling wherewith we've been called, as Paul says in Ephesians, but we're also working with God in God's mission. Not just those we send to the ends of the earth, but we ourselves are participating with God, co-workers with God, as Paul puts it, in God's great mission to bring blessing to the nations of this world. Let's pray that it may be so. Let's now pray. 
Oh, Father, we thank you for giving us these scriptures. Thank you for revealing to us your own thoughts, your own self-reminders, your own notes to self that we see even within the scriptures. How wonderful it is, Lord, that you stoop down and give us words, words to understand your mind and your thoughts and your intentions. Help us to respond to them, we pray, through your Holy Spirit, that we may live in ways that are walking in your ways, distinct from the ways of the Sodom and Gomorrah that we live in the midst of. Help us, we pray, for your namesake and for your glory. Amen.